Welcome to another week on Let's Get Real with Coach Menachem Show, Sunday Nights. Originally a Zoom interactive platform where we discuss real life scenarios with real live people. Here we go. Okay, everybody, welcome. This is actually the eighth uh, shear that we're doing, episode or whatever you want to call it. And uh, we have a massive lineup tonight. We're very excited. I hope we're going to be able to cover some serious ground. Um, I don't know, maybe we just brought on too many people, but we're going to try to really do it together. Guys, can we do it? Thumbs up from me. Let's see how good the technology treats us tonight. Okay. Um, so first of all, I wanted to welcome everybody. And I wanted to say the reason why this uh, share came about tonight is because, as we know, we just uh, are experiencing COVID. And everybody is extremely uh, heavily involved in technology. And we're living, breathing it much more than we ever did. And um, we figured we'd go to the top experts in the field. And uh, I can't believe who we got. It's just shocking to see that we got such a, from all walks of the, all walks of the globe over here, we have Boston, Dr. David Rosemarin, who's a assistant professor from Harvard. How are you? We have Dr. Ellie Shapiro. Hello, I can't even, I can't even introduce Dr. Shapiro because he's just everything. He's just, I'll give you, when, when I introduce you, I'll, I'll tell everybody who you are. And then we have a guy who's actually um, dealing with people that are actually have serious addictions once they, you know, pass the fine line, which is Mordechai Weiss over here in Lakewood. So we're going to try to navigate the, the sheer and the questions, you know, wherever they're, 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 they, they make more sense to go to. I'm going to try to, I'm going to say this. I know you guys are not going to like this. No therapist likes to hear this. Whatever the questions are, we're going to try to keep it short and to the point and concise so we can cover ground. I know that's not a, Mordechai Weiss doesn't like to hear that because that's not fear for therapists, but um, that's what we got to do as much as possible. Coach Menachem will open up and then I'll take it back, okay? Welcome everyone. Welcome to another show on Let's Get Real with Coach Menachem. Now, and until now, I've been getting the feedback um, via email and technology. And because the things are, now things are slowly opening up, I get a chance to meet people and people walk over in person without technology to, to give me feedback on all the shows. And it's really unbelievable just to hear even now over Schwartz, the stories that people have just by sitting and watching, getting the awareness and helping all those people out there, which is really, really a big physic. And um, that's why I would like to thank again, the sponsors, all the sponsors, and especially the Let's Get Real team that work 24-7 to make this a real success. Now, tonight's topic, mind over technology, the truth is we're all, we are all on a mission. We all have something to accomplish, whether it's the big picture in life or it's every day, whether you go to work, there's a lot that we have to do. And technology has the milus and concerns. It has the, the, the pros and the cons. Now, I will hear later on a little bit more from the people that do, that do in this every day. But us on our mission, technology sometimes could rob us. It distracts us and we don't even realize the marketing out there and the whole technology we don't even realize how subconsciously they're out there to get you. Whether it's to make a sale, to get your attention, 
And if we're not aware of it, sometimes it's too late. And the truth is to look back after a while, it might, it might be too late. But the truth is you don't really realize, you don't always realize how bad it is or how it's robbing you. Sometimes, you know, it's just now, just today, just this week, I have to do it, it's for work or whatever it is. And it could keep us going for a while. And uh, if after that we look back and we realize how it really affects the relationships, how it affects, um, we'll hear later the, the psychological issues and we need everything to be, everything we need is, we need it to be um, instant gratification. And many times it leads us to depression for many people. Now depression, some people think that it has to mean that I'm staying in bed and I'm depressed, but really there's a subtle depression that doesn't mean that you can continue working and it looks like you're doing everything right, but you're really not living. It's, it's just like routine. I'm doing every day the same thing. The passion is, is lost. And this is something that can be robbed because it, things don't work the way we want. We see in technology how everything works to other people, or it could be negative news, or whatever it is, the negative things that we get from technology, and it really saps out our energy. And it could look like we're living, but after a few years, and it might be a little bit late to look back and say, what in the world? To be able to come back, to be mindful and realize what do I want? Where am I? What am I working on? And then the most important values that we have, whether it's relationships, um, if we want to learn to be more involved in, in, in religious things. So these are all things that we have to become more mindful and I think the topic tonight is going to, um, especially with the therapist that we have tonight, which is why I'm very excited to have David Rosemarin and uh, Ellie Shapiro and Mordecai Weiss, which will help us a little bit to understand um, where, where it is. And I guess they'll share a little bit of numbers with us from the research and things that, that eventually, hopefully we'll be able to take out some steps that every one of us will be able to apply and get more mindful on technology so that we can be in control instead of the technology should be controlling us. Thank you very much, oh, yeah. Dr. Nathan. Appreciate it. Okay, let's get started. Um, first of all, I want to thank every, the corporate sponsor this week, Mr. David Lichtenstein from yeshivashalmala.com, which is an incredible website that features all daily living Torah and interesting interactive shirim. We're going to give you in the middle a little walkthrough of the website because I really want to show everybody how amazing this website is. You can basically be learning Torah all day and going to shirim all day, which is amazing. I want to give a special thank you to our advertising sponsors, Mrs. Chayla Kauf from Yeshiva World, Matziv, LNN, the Lakewood Network. Lakewood's most viewed status. You can sign up by sending a WhatsApp message to 732-903-5017. We give a special thank to Yankel Wanger from the Lakewood Chopper, Jay Blast, Mika Sofer from COL Live, and for all the children and teens, singles and couples, millennials, the baby boomers, for all our cherished seniors, Chazak offers programming for all. Go Chazak. Okay, now, before we start tonight, I just want to give a little introduction. What we're going to do tonight is we have three therapists. Everybody's going to open up with a small little opening. We'll start with uh, Mordechai Weiss followed by Ellie Shapiro, Dr. Ellie Shapiro and Dr. Rosemarin. 
and then we will maybe do a poll. We'll do some live questions. Anybody who wants to text any of the hosts, um, any of us, you could text directly a question, preferably to text to me because I'm gonna be asking probably most of the questions. And whoever's willing to turn on the camera and ask a live question, they will have uh, Kadimo. They will go first and be able to ask questions. We want it to be interactive and live. So let's really, really get to the bottom of it, okay? Um, let's start off with Mordechai Weiss from Lakewood, my good friend, my neighbor actually. He's a psychotherapist with extensive training and experience with working with adolescent adult uh, population. He specializes in treatments of anxiety, OCD, and internet addiction. He has a much bigger bio. I'm cutting it short, but he is the king in Lakewood. Mordechai, please open up. First of all, I'd like to give a big thank you to Ushi, to Menachem, Coach Menachem, and all of the people behind the scenes that make this show happen. And uh, hopefully tonight's program will be a big tayalas and people will have uh, in helpful information to deal with technology. I had the good fortune uh, to spend a few years learning in Eretz Yisrael after I was married, and I was close to Rabbi Noah Orlewick. And on more than one occasion, I heard him share the following story. He said that uh, when he was a bacher, he was learning by Rabbi Avigdor Miller, Zechatarik Vracha, and he had a chavrusa that was struggling with his Yetzir Hara. So he advised him, why don't you go talk to Rabbi Avigdor Miller about it? So one day, the bacher gathered up the courage and he approached his Rebbe and he said, Rebbe, I have a problem. I have a huge Yetzir Hara and I'm really struggling and I don't know what to do about it. So Avigdor Miller looked up at him and in his inimitable style, he smiled, he let a little laugh, and he said, ha, don't worry about it. The first hundred years are the hardest. And I think it's important to know that when it comes to certain struggles, we have to be prepared for the long haul, and we have to realize that when we're in a struggle or we're facing an issue that's going to be never-ending, we need to be prepared to deal with it and strategize for it in that way, and also realize that there's going to be some ups and downs along the way. So I think in order to uh, realize how we can tackle this issue, it's important always when we want to face an issue, we want to deal with an issue to understand the yesoid or the nature, the basic elements underlying the issue that we're facing or the challenge that we're facing. So in regard to technology, um, of course, I'm looking forward to hear what my panelists, I'm looking forward to hear what my panelists will share with us tonight. They may have a different view. Um, but the way I see it, and based on my training, I'm noticing that there's two basic elements regarding the struggle we're facing with technology. The first is that technology offers instant or what's called immediate gratification. Menachem did allude to that in his introduction. And what that means is as follows. Every human being, every person has within himself a lot of character traits. A person has within him curiosity, desires, a person wants to have recognition or what we call covid. And while back in the day, uh, 100 years ago, before the advent of technology, if you wanted to get something, if you wanted to fulfill even your base desires, that required effort and hard work. You couldn't get instant recognition. You couldn't become a star overnight. You couldn't satisfy your desires. You couldn't satisfy your curiosity instantly. Today, all of that, all of those character traits that are within a person because of technology, that can offer us immediate gratification. So that is the first challenge that we're faced with. How do we deal with something that can offer us immediate gratification and thereby take us away from the effort that's usually involved to get something that we need? The second thing, the second thing which is very much connected to the first is accessibility. 
which means that the other problem we're facing with technology is, is that it's, it's accessible. It's everywhere. We have it in our homes, we have it in our offices, we have it in our pockets, and we have it in our shuls. It's a situation that Chazal referred to as when we're faced with a situation where it's absolutely accessible, and plus, in addition, the pull or the lure that it has is so powerful, it's a very, very powerful force to deal with. So now, how do we deal with this? So that, now that we understood the nature of the problem, how can we respond? What are some ways that we can tackle this issue? So the first response is to address the accessibility factor is we need to uh, make it less accessible. Now, actually, I was on the show a few weeks ago and Ushi asked me to talk a little bit about technology. So some of you who were on this show may have heard this, um, but it's worth repeating. So there's three main categories of ways to tackle the accessibility issue. The first is filtration. If you put a filter on your devices, you put a filter on your family's devices, that is obviously one good way to limit some of that access. The second one is monitoring. If we put in either monitoring software or you are having somebody that can know what you're doing when you're online, somebody who can have access to what you're doing with technology, somebody who you discuss it with, or maybe you can place it in a certain location where there's some monitoring regarding how you're using technology. That is the third way, that is the second way, excuse me, to limit access. The third way to tackle access or that ever-present accessibility is by putting some limitations on our devices, which is either in time or place. So if we limit the time that we use on our devices, if we only use it in certain places and not in others, that is a third way how we can tackle the accessibility issue. As far as the gratification factor, the immediate gratification, the instant gratification, I'm only talking in general terms here. Uh, obviously, uh, there can be a lot of specific work that needs to be done here, but often people who struggle with overuse of technology, it is because they are lacking a meaningful or fulfilling life. And if we can help people develop a fulfilling and meaningful life, developing, uh, whether that's in areas of spirituality, relationships, activities, interests, where a person can kind of have some interest or something that captures them, captivates them, that gives them a sense of vitality in their lives, then that lure of instant gratification lessens. So that's basically the second strategy um, as far as targeting the gratification factor in a general way, how we might be able to target or deal with that nature of the problem. So to sum up, the problem is basically instant gratification and accessibility. We wanna target those things by limiting access and also making sure that we have a fulfilling life in all areas outside of technology. And then we are in a good position to deal with this challenge and to use technology successfully. Thank so you. that's my piece, guys. I appreciate that. Um, Dr. Ellie Shapiro is a licensed clinical social worker with a doctorate in education and specializes a certificate in Jewish education leadership. He's the creator of the director of the Digital Citizen Project, which I one day wanna find out what that is. Dr. Shapiro has presented to thousands of parents in schools, facilities, and communi communities across North America and has lectured for internationally recognized organizations, including Good to Israel of America, Torah Masari, Shiva University, and many others. I couldn't list all of them, I'm sorry. Dr. Shapiro is an expert on the, on the social and emotional functioning of families and leads a national study on Jewish families and technology. Dr. Shapiro. Thank you for that uh, wonderful introduction. It's almost as if I, I wrote it myself. It was really excellent. 
Um, although I don't recall giving you editorial rights, but okay, fine. Um, moving right along. Um, so thank you for having me on. I want to thank Dr. Rosmarin for, for suggesting me uh, and being involved with I've been very impressed with uh, the operation overall, very professional, and uh, the organizational piece in putting this together. Um, my background, I've, as you mentioned, I'm a clinical social worker. My doctorate's in education. My focus has always been on social-emotional functioning. Uh, and uh, back in my early career days, I was focusing on school-based bullying. Uh, and it merged as technology became more and more ubiquitous into uh, my interest in cyberbullying. And more than that, how technology was impacting functioning overall. My particular area of interest wasn't the, uh, what we may call the technology addicted individuals, but really the vast majority of us that technology plays a role in our lives and how it is either uh, serving as an enhancement in our lives or serving as an intrusion in our lives. And that's something that we have to ask ourselves every day, is technology the amazing opportunities that technology brings, the wonderful opportunities that it presents, is it serving as an enhancement or is it serving as an intrusion? And for, the, for, for most of us, uh, on any given day, it could be an enhancement or an intrusion, or multiple times a day, it could serve as both. And the goal really is um, very similar to what uh, Mordechai Weiss was just saying, uh, is really to be in control of our technology use and to leverage um, our understanding and be taking a thoughtful and deliberative approach to using technology uh, on a day-to-day -day basis. So we understand that it impacts everybody and you don't have to be a technology addict or an internet addict to experience this, but it impacts everybody socially, psychologically, behaviorally, our day-to-day -day functioning, our family relationships, our family dynamics. So it impacts us all more or less. The question is how can we leverage the benefits and the amazing opportunities that technology brings and reduce those inherent challenges? And my understanding is based on the research and based on the work that I've done is that the more we are conscientious of it and the more we take ownership of it and the more we are strategic and the terms I often use are thoughtful and deliberative. The more we take a thoughtful and deliberative approach to the utilization of technology, the more we're going to be able to benefit from it and avoid many of the inherent challenges. So that's mostly what I speak about and I think what I'm here to uh, weigh in on uh, when it's my turn. Amazing, beautiful. Dr. Roseman, you here? Yes, I am. How are you? Good, how are you? Let me introduce you. Are you ready? Sure. Here we go. Um, I really cut down your bio because um, it's the show's only two hours. I'm sorry. It'll be just your bio. <laughs> Dr. David Roseman, PhD. He's an assistant professor at Harvard Medical School, the founder director of Center for Anxiety in New York. I'm getting nervous just saying that. His clinical work and research is focuses on spirituality and mental health and has been featured in Scientific America, the Boston Globe, the Wall Street Journal, and the New York Failing Times. I just had to get that Fair in enough. <laughs> Fair enough, especially this week. Thank you, uh, Coach Renachem. Thanks, uh, Rabbi Parnes, for having me, for inviting me to this panel. Um, I want to be very clear at the outset. I am not going to tell anybody to get rid of your devices, okay? I have a, a Google Pixel. I have two MacBook Pros. I'm talking to you on my 27-inch Thunderbolt screen. I blazing fast Wi-Fi at home, probably like a thousand megabytes per second. Um, and um, I, I, you know, in terms, I'm using my earpods. You know, definitely tech is something that you know I use, and I'm not going to ask anybody to do something I wouldn't do myself. However, if we don't understand the power of technology, 
and learn how to use it properly, you're literally playing with fire. You're playing with fire. Um, the degree to which we use it is incredible. It's, it's unbelievable. Um, communication and taking pictures and videos. Just today, you know, if it weren't for Google Maps, I would have been lost, uh, ambling around Boston. Um, banking, shopping, whether it's clothing, whether it's food, whether it's groceries, delivering, ordering meals back and forth, especially with COVID. We're all, you know, using technology. Right now, how many people are on this call? There are 287 people from around, you know, North America right now using Zoom. All of us are using technology right now, accessing critical information, whether it's names, phone numbers, telling the date, time, using it as a, as a watch, you know, using it as an alarm clock. All of us keeping ourselves organized with calendars, financial matters, but more important than the productivity, which we are all increasingly reliant upon, is that technology can be used directly to enhance our relationships and our connection. We can, most of all, be extremely efficient, so that way we can focus and have quality time with the people who we love. If we can do our work quicker, then we can clear it off our plate and then actually have quality time. But also, we can use apps to keep track of our thoughts, our moods, our ideas, so that way they don't just go off into the ether. Um, just using a Google Docs sheet with your to-do list, staying organized. How many people also use it to communicate with other people? It's, it's unbelievable. And there are many mitzvahs you can do with technology in terms of connecting to Hashem, whether it's listening to Shurim. I, by the way, I don't know whether tonight's a shiur, you said before. So full disclosure, but um, anyhow. Um, David, we brought you for the spirituality part, so it's going to be a share. Wow, that. So um, uh, finding minyanim, kosher food, you know, doing incredible chesed. There's unbelievable acts of chesed. Today, my wife is signing up for, you know, a meal train for somebody who just had a baby. You know, we, we've all done it. It's amazing. So on the surface, why are we even having a panel? You know, this is an amazing thing. It makes life easier. It makes it easier to connect. We can use it to, but the truth is, that, and my Rebbe said this, Rabbi Leib Kellerman of Yerushalayim, he says the following, everything in this world, everything can be used for its purpose or for the opposite of its purpose. And along these lines, he, serves, he, he, he gives a mushal about nuclear energy. If you take nuclear energy and you harness it in the right way, you can power cities. You can literally give life after nighttime or whatever, even during the day, to cities. Empower hospitals, empower uh, all the electricity. Um, and you can also use it in a targeted way in radiation in order to destroy cancer cells. But if you take nuclear energy and it's not focused and it's not you know, used in an appropriate way, it will literally destroy cities and it will cause cancer. It's used for its purpose or for the opposite. And the devices that we have, they're literally like nuclear energy and they are in our homes. And they can do these unbelievable things when we use them for our intended purposes. But God forbid if we don't, if we don't use them for connection um, with Hashem, with ourselves, with ourselves, with others, and with Hashem in that order. Uh, and if we don't take precautions to use it appropriately, then it can cause unbelievable damage. And the damage we're seeing clinically it's never been this bad in history and it's getting worse because so many people don't use it appropriately. So I'm not gonna tell you not to get your devices and not to use them, but if we're not using them responsibly, digital responsibility, we are causing incredible damage and we have to realize, we have to realize the, uh, the magnitude of it.
Um, speaking of technology, I didn't start my stopwatch, so I don't know how many more minutes I have for my intro. Hey, we're going to go to two in the morning. It's fine. Well, I'll tell you a couple things specifically about tech. Um, just off the cuff, one of them is that today people can't be doing nothing. We can't just sit. Everyone's like, hold on, did you stop talking, right? Like, no, I, I just, for 30 seconds, I stopped. See, look, Usher's on, Usher's on his phone. He can't even sit. Now he's on another device. Bad news. We can't just sit. And I, I think people are so uncomfortable with themselves at every moment in time. It's in an elevator waiting in line. Uh, another thing is that, that you know, um, Mordechai spoke before about the need, you know, the, the instant gratification, but it's actually worse. It's an inability to fail. People can't fail today because everything has to be not only lickety split fast, but it has to be successful. It's like if it takes more than 30 nanoseconds for a Google search to populate, then I did something wrong. And those two issues of not being able to sit with ourselves and not being able to fail, they're causing unbelievable hardship. Um, so many people today in my clinical practice at the Center for Anxiety in New York, not just tense, frustrated, stressed, and anxious, we're talking about inability to function. Like literally cannot get, you know, cannot function day to day. And a lot of it ultimately boils down to that need to be successful at everything. And when people start to fail at something, they see it as a fundamental flaw in them. These days, my favorite thing to tell my patients is to take on something every single day that's beyond your ability. Take on a project that you cannot be successful with unless you're gonna really work on it for many, many, many months, years even, something that is way, way, way out of line. You're gonna fail and you're gonna fail miserably because we have to learn to be able to do that. Tech is making us so reliant that we have to be successful every moment of the day. It's not true. You can be a royal failure for years and then come out on top in the end. Sounds like my golf game. There you go, <laughs> perfect. Okay. Perfect. There's nothing wrong with failing. Um, what's wrong is when people give up, when people have to get those, you know, those hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of files. And I have a lot more to say, but we'll see what happens with the questions. Okay. Very nice. Beautiful. Let's take a quick little walk through through the sponsored sites tonight. I said I'm going to tell everybody what it looks like. Um, give me one sec. If everybody can see my screen. Um, this is the website. It's called Yeshiva Shamala. It's an amazing website. It has every day a full list of shiurim, technology shiurim, by the way. And you can go through day by day from 11 a.m., 12 a.m., 1 a.m., 12 a.m., as you can see. Our shear is right here at 12.15, mine over tech. You see it is listed as a shear. It's listed under Hashkafa Musr. So you can break it down by Hasidus, Chinuch, Dafyomi. And it's an amazing site. And just to show you the magnitude of this, um, what it looks like. Let's see if I can move this here. I can't. Okay. But I don't know, bottom line is it's a fully loaded site and everybody should check it out, yeshivashamala.com. And let's take a quick poll, David. How does this sound? Um, okay, this is an honest poll and I'm expecting everybody to answer honestly. It is anonymous, so I will not know what you say, but I want everybody to get a feeling of what we're, before we get warmed up for some questions. The question goes like this. Do all your electronic devices that you have access to have a monitor and or filter? Yes or no, please click on it or most. So we can get an idea of what type of crowd we're dealing with. Again, it's nothing personal, but we want to see what we're dealing with. You have five seconds. David. Wow. David. Wow. wow. You see um, it was worth it just for this. 
Okay. We're in trouble. All those that are calling in, how many people oh. have, have full device on all, on all their items is 27%, while 48% of people do not have a filter on their devices, and 25% say on most of the devices, you know, the ones that, you know, people see, but the other ones they don't. Very interesting poll, very, very interesting to see. Um, I'd like everybody to be interactive. If anybody could turn on their cameras, anybody has live questions, please text me. We like people to ask live questions. It makes it very interesting. Um, I like to start off usually with the one or two bomb questions to get things started. And um, since we have so many people, how about I'll pass around the question and Dr. Ellie, Dr. David, Mordechai, if you want to chime in, chime in. Don't feel like to answer every question because there's so many questions I have. Let's do that, okay? And Coach Menachem as well. Um, should we start with that question? Did you share the results, Oshi, with everybody? Yes, we did. We shared the results. Oh, okay. Did everybody see the results? I said it wasn't results. good. You don't want it was wasn't yeah, good. Yeah, you know, I want to I want to weigh in. We had spoken last week. Um, the research I had done, uh, this goes back two years already when I pulled probably close to three and a half, four thousand uh, day school yeshiva students from across North America. And the same question was asked, um, do all the electronic uh, devices in your home, are they filtered? And it was 35% was the average. We saw certain communities as low as 15%, certain communities as high as 40%, but it was basically in the 35% range. So this is actually in line uh, with, uh, with what I would have expected. And um, uh, we still need work. All right, here's the first question. I'm gonna shoot this question. We'll start with you, Dr. Ellie, okay? But then I'm gonna shoot it to you, Dr. David, and then Mordechai. Let's, let's just start with Ellie first, okay? You ready? Ready. I get very anxious Friday night when I can't use my phone. Normally, it's like a self-soothing thing for me to have when I go to bed, like a security, because if this is sure to leave my phone downstairs in public place so that it's not in my room and I won't transgress Shabbos prohibitions, but I do find it very hard and I get extremely anxious. Definitely sounds something a little more clinical. Um, I might want to punt that, but in general, the first thing is that it sounds like the person's taking steps to put the phone away to ensure that they're managing their behavior. So I think that step is in the right direction. When you're talking about such a degree of dependence on the device that uh, you're feeling anxiety on a Friday night, you know, you have to assess your relationship um, with the device. And clearly uh, that's a high degree of dependency. Uh, in general, uh, you know, we've all been in that place where we forgot our, our phone at home, right? And we have that initial panic. Oh my God, I forgot my phone at home. And like, and you're, you're like, oh my, I forgot my phone at home. No one can't. Oh my God, I forgot my phone at home. No one can't. Right. right? So we like, we panic. And those of us that are moderately well-adjusted, it goes from this, oh my gosh, I forgot my phone at home. No one can get in touch with me. To, I forgot my phone at home. No one can get in touch with me. <laughs> all right. And then like this calm comes over, like a manuchas and nefesh, a, re a relaxation. A comp, right? That's if, if we're my, so what you're describing is actually someone who has a really high degree of dependence on their device that even Shabbos, I think we can all relate that Shabbos, it, what makes Shabbos so amazing and so wonderful is that, I mean, there's a lot of things, but one thing is that we, we don't have the technology as, as a distraction. When we think about connectivity with other people, the quality of our relationship with our spouses, with our, our friends, when we used to see friends uh, with our children, uh, you know, the quality of it is so much better because we are not distracted by our devices. So if we're experiencing that, we're not able to tap into the amazing opportunity that Shabbos brings. I would say that that starts falling into an area that probably requires a, a degree of clinical intervention as opposed to, but it does sound like the, this person is already taking steps in the right direction to, to behaviorally 
manage it. But I, I would definitely turn that over to a more clinical. Uh, Mordechai. Um, I appreciate everything that you said, Ali, and everything that you shared. Um, I would just uh, maybe add on a little bit to what you said. First of all, the limiting of the access, as you mentioned, that's a step he's taking in the right direction. Certainly that'll help. Um, and I also want to just uh, uh, follow your idea about how he may be able to tap a little bit more into the value that he can place on being detached from his device. So you mentioned how on Shabbos, how so many of us can relate to that feeling of being free, of not being tied down to our devices. So, you know, this is something we would do in therapy is when somebody's struggling because of their addiction or they're very attached to something and they're struggling to put some type of barrier in place. So we would want to uh, do, uh, figure out what their motivation is to limit that behavior. So if we would have some conversations, I would encourage this person maybe to write down some of his values or why that would be important to him to limit his use on device. I see Menachem is smiling. I know he likes that idea. Um, but certainly if we, he can get more in touch with his values around why it's important for him not to use his device on Shabbos rather than just look at it like a burden, which he seems to be viewing it now, like, oh my gosh, I need my device and I just can't get it. That'll obviously make the struggle easier, easier for him as well. And of course, therapy can always help. I want to so. add one more piece to it that from what you're describing, um, this individual, the technology dependence may be a manifestation of a larger anxiety or social anxiety issue. A lot of the research seems to suggest that with texting addiction specifically, that there's very high rates of correlation of social anxiety and that's where that dependence comes from. So you, you've heard about, uh, there was a study uh, in 2012 at Yeshiva University on what they termed half Shabbos, where they found that 18% of otherwise Shomer uh, Shabbos uh, individuals were texting and engaging in social media on Shabbos. So what they found was with that and, um, and in other published studies, there were high rates of anxiety and high rates of social anxiety. So what we're seeing, the, the technology piece may just be a manifestation of a larger issue and addressing the technology uh, piece component exclusive of the larger anxiety, social anxiety issue might be a mistake. But again, I would leave that to our clinical experts. I wanna bring on somebody over here who's actually a very good friend of mine. Um, he actually deals with a lot of you know kid, children uh, teenagers that um, he's very familiar with this issue, not from a clinical standpoint, but from a Rebbe standpoint, my good friend Mordechai Kassira. What's your opinion about the anxiety of using a phone on Chavez? So, uh, like you said, not from a clinical standpoint, but more from a Rebbe standpoint, I don't think it, it's really a clinical point. I think it's um, a second nature, especially with the teenagers, that they can't seem to manage life without it at all. It's just part of their whole... And if you, if you take away their phone from them, we try to take it away for class for an hour, they're, they're not themselves. So taking it away for Shabbos is so much more of a struggle. Um, we do have a program in Yeshiva where we incentivize the boys just to give their phone to an adult for Shabbos. And it's not a Shmir Shabbos program. It's just giving away the phone. And that is such a hard step for struggling teenagers to do. I don't know if it's a clinical point. I think that comes with their staging and growing and becoming mentioned it falls off, just like a lot of other, there are other times fall off. Thank you, Matthew. Mm, I don't know about that one. I don't know about that one, I gotta jump in. Um, yeah, I, for sure it's a clinical issue. I mean, if somebody can't sit for 10 minutes, 20 minutes, even a day, and not be engaged in doing something, 
that's already an indication that there's, I mean, you might see it in religious terms, I guess, like, you know, give your phone to someone else and then you'll be more likely to keep Shabbos. And I hear that from a religious education standpoint, but from a psychological standpoint, there's, there's a major, what we'd call chisaron there, which is the ability to just sit and be with yourself. I'm reminded of a story my Rebbe told me actually about Revolva. Rav Shlomo Volba used to have apparently a policy in Beriakov that, um, I guess it is turning into a shir, um, that uh, um, all the Bacharim had to leave the base midrash for 30 minutes every day and go for a walk with no sparim, and they weren't listening to audio shurim. They just had to sit and be with their thoughts and be with themselves every day. And it was once a Mitsuyan, like an amazing, amazing Bachar, who refused to take his time and to leave the base of Midrash. He wanted to have an extra Seder, he wanted to do Hazara, he wanted to push, he wanted to shy. And Revolva picked him up and threw him out of the base of Midrash and said, this is the policy in the Yeshiva. And apparently he was also not a fan of people walking around on the bus and on the, uh, you know, at the bus, on the bus stop sitting there doing Hazara. Because you need time to think. A human being just sitting and thinking and being yourself. We don't always, we can't always be productive. These devices are incredible for productivity. They're incredible. You can run a, you know, uh, an entire corporation from, from, from your living room. It's amazing. But it's, it's not being. We're doing. It's doing, 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 as opposed to being. Shabbos is about being. Shabbos is just about, right? You're not, you're not, there's no malacha. You're not doing anything. You're just being. And people don't know how to be anymore. To me, that's a clinical issue. And I, it, by the way, the reason it's a clinical issue is because it's clinically associated with depression, anxiety, you name it, all of the addictions, all of them at the, at the root of it come down to, can you sit with yourself and just be? So I, I want to add to that. It is dicey. That's what I'm thinking. No, I, I want to add to that, that I really do see a bell curve of averages amongst teens, some teens that are just much more dependent and connected to and have a less healthy relationship with their devices, and then some teens that have a healthier and a less connected relationship with their devices. So I, I wouldn't put teens all into one category that they're so dependent. Sure. I, I, I very much see it um, both in, in, uh, in the schools that I work in and the communities that I visit. And, um, you know, it, 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 I think models similar to adults. And I think in some ways, teens, even because they've grown up with the technology, there are certain things that they take for granted with it, but understanding the quality of their relationships. I'll give you just a quick story. My daughter had a, um, a uh, birthday party for friends, uh, for a friend in our house. So there were about 20 uh, 11th graders that came over to my house. When they came in, they took their phones and they put it on the uh where we put our keys in the house you know when you come in so they put their phones down i didn't ask them to there was no rule about it but they knew inherently that if they wanted to have a quality experience together they put their phones away with that said they did take their phones out to take pictures and capture the moments and then they put them away again and so what it means is they've been taught at some point uh, whether it's their family or whether it's school that there is benefit to putting the phone aside they internalize that message and their behavior is reflective of that not every kid can do that and when we start dealing with kids that can't do that or approaching Shabbos and can't separate it and again it's a you know uh, the YU study found that about 18 percent then we are starting to move towards that clinical piece that I think is of more concern okay 
let's move on to the next question because I have so many and I have a lot of people that I want to ask live. Let's take a live question and then we'll do some some of the other questions that I have, okay? Um, let me get a hum on. Uh, we also got to get back to the poll. We're going to get back to that. I promise. Okay. Hi. Can you hear me? Hello. Yeah, hi. How are you? Oh, wow. I didn't realize I was going to actually be on that fast. Oh, my gosh. I'm so sorry. Let's go. Yes, I am good. Baruch Hashem, yourself. Amazing. Okay, so um, for my question, I grew up in a from home. My father was actually a rabbi. And my parents let us watch movies. My father would even now buy us Archie comics. And so I never had the Sahara to go behind my parents' back and watch a movie because if I wanted to, I could. With that being said, I, we have devices. Um, they're all with passwords. They do not have filters. I'm guilty because I feel that let my kids, if they want, be able to see things. Uh, the devices that we have in the house are all um, like laptops or iPads, so they can't take them out of public areas. They know that. On the other hand, my kids know, keep, my older kids keep on telling me, you need to have filters on them because, you know, when they sign on, you don't know what's coming up when they go into YouTube, even though they're going into YouTube with something that I've told them is okay. So... On one hand, I feel like they should have filters. On the other hand, I feel like if they're not going behind my back, they won't have the aid Sahara to see things that they sh shouldn't be seeing. Wow, okay, let's slow down. Well, slow down. <laughs> Who wants to go first? I'm about to jump, so. Um, I got it, okay. I got data. Okay, let's go with data. We'll start with data. Okay, um, firstly, there's definitely some MS to what you're saying that if you give people a wider berth, to some degree, they're less likely to take the junk food, they're less likely to, to use uh -huh. that advice. But we're dealing with something so powerful that if you don't have at least a monitor, let alone a filter, it, I wanna tell you some data. So a couple of years ago, um, uh, some colleagues and I conducted a three-year study in the Jewish community. This is a, a $250,000 study of over 600 Jewish individuals um, over a three-year period. And we followed um, uh, people uh, every six months for three years. Now, there are a number of advantages of doing that. Our primary goals were to look at how spiritual and religious factors were associated with over time. But in addition to that, we had another goal, which was to be able to insert items that were very sensitive, questions about very sensitive topics into the third year of the study, when we'd already been working with these people for a couple of years. If you do a study in the Jewish community and you say how many people are using the internet inappropriately or how many people have had, you know, histories of whatever X, Y, and Z, they're less likely to respond. And also the types of people who you're going to get to respond, they're not going to be representative. But if you take a sample, a STOM sample, so to speak, and you follow them over time and in, the, in later years of the study, you start asking them sensitive questions, then you're going to get a better sense of really what's going on. And that's what we did. And we asked about inappropriate internet use. And the numbers were not good. What we found was that, and by the way, this is kind of to your point, um, we found that 44% of Bali Chuba married males had some degree of, and by the way, I want to say one more thing. Until now, we've not been speaking about content issues. We've just been speaking about the fact that technology in of itself, never mind the content, 
is a problem. And Ellie Shapiro, you've been like a champion of this. I'm surprised you didn't say this point already because you're like, this is like your, I'm, I'm wagging, I'm waving your flag over here. It's like, you know, it's not about content. The main thing is it makes you, it makes us lazy. It makes us uh, fear of failure. It makes us dependent. And you know, all of those issues that we've been speaking about. Now we're getting into content, okay? So in addition to all those extremely problematic things, what we found was that 44% of Bali Chuva married males and 42% of Bali Chuva unmarried males had been looking, let's just say, using the internet inappropriately at least every, at least every, um, every two months, at least six times a year over the last year. And by, by people who were um, from, from birth, like you, it was 58% of married males and 71% of unmarried males, which is quite a bit more than the Bali Chuva, which actually, by the way, speaks to the importance potentially of what you said of giving people access to technology so we learn how to use it. By the way, I'm not a Rav, I'm not speaking from a rabbinic perspective, I'm completely just a clinical psychologist speaking with the data, okay? So I'm not poskening for the community and I'm not going against anybody who says otherwise. But it seems to be that people who have access to technology throughout their lives are better able to handle it than people who probably have less access to technology. So that's your point. However, these numbers, 42%, 58%, 71%, let me tell you another thing. 25% of unmarried females had a similar problem and 10% of married females. So that is not small. Those are large numbers. And to that, to that end, the fact that 48% of the sample does not have a filter. The, what's amazing about the filters and monitors these days is that they don't even have to block anything. They're monitoring devices that are taking pictures of, of, of my screen 24-7. Every device in my house. And, and, it, and they have recognition software. And if anything gets flagged, I get an email about it. Rabbi Kellerman gets an email about it. You know, my wife gets an email about it. It's transparent. And that holds everybody accountable. And if I didn't have that, then man, there's no way that I would have a device. If you don't have monitoring and filtering and every device in your house, you're crazy. <laughs> I mean, that with all due respect, it, you are completely crazy from, from a completely secular perspective. Like you're just playing with fire. And that's my opinion on the matter. Ellie, I want to hear from you on this one. So um, I, I concur with Dr. Rosmarin. Um, I, I, what we have found that when we looked at filters, we found, like I said before, only 35% um, had filters on all the devices available to them. Um, what we also found was that filters only went so far. Um, in fact, that just having the filter in and of itself wasn't particularly effective for intentionally looking uh, at inappropriate content. Um, what we found was that parental communication and influence uh, paired with filters had the most significant impact. Uh, so what, what's interesting is that the filters serve as a, as a physical manifestation of the parental outlook and the parental values, which really is our goal as parents to inculcate those values into our kids. If we say something, but we don't follow it up with uh, setting limits, setting rules, setting guidelines. It's interesting, we, uh, we, we tend to poll kids and we say, do you have rules and guidelines in your house around technology? And we ask parents as well. So when we hear from the parents, the numbers like 85% of parents say they have set rules and guidelines in the house. When we ask the kids, it's something like 25, 30% say that there are set rules and guidelines in their house. So we see that there's like a misstep between what parents uh, 
think they've uh, conveyed to their children and what the children are actually hearing, which is so critical. It's not a gotcha statistic. What it is, is it's telling us that as parents, we have to be much more effective in communicating to our children what our expectations are, what our values are. Part of that is the filter. The filter is very important. It's, it's like driving a car without a seatbelt. You've got to have the seatbelt on, but it doesn't teach you to drive responsibly. We have this whole separate piece of you know, learning to drive responsibly, but the, the filter is a critical component uh, as part of a multi-pronged strategic approach to uh, creating an environment of safety and security for kids at home and for, for families uh, as a whole. I want to I move on to the next question because there's so many questions. I feel like we're not going to cover ground. I mean, that was obviously a, a little mind-opening question, to be quite honest with you. Um, this question I got, and I'm actually going to direct it towards Mordechai Weiss, if that's okay. Okay? Sure. And it's actually feeding on to the, the previous question. My husband is addicted to all his devices. I'd rather not think about what he's spending so much time on. How could I help him? How could I help myself? From a clinical standpoint, Mordechai. Yikes. Um, okay. So the first thing I would like to do is uh, give some empathy. Uh, it sounds like um, I can hear the pain coming through in that letter. Um, and uh, living with an addict can be a really painful experience, and I can hear the hurt in the question. Having said that, um, there's another point that I'd like to share. Um, can you, can you read me the, last, the end of the question again, Oshie? Read it back again. Sure. My husband is addicted to his devices. I'd rather not think about what he's spending so much time on. How can I help him? How can I help myself? Okay. So how can I help him? How can I help myself? So what I'd like to say is, is very important is that spouses of addicts should know, and if anybody out there is one of those who's listening, you didn't create this problem and you are not the solution. Uh, very often, spouses of addicts feel a certain amount of guilt or shame, and they think to themselves, if only I would do X, if only I wouldn't have done X. And we have to realize that people are responsible for their own actions, and an addict is responsible to take control of their life. So this is not your problem. So that's important to know. So let's reduce some, some guilt or shame around that. The second piece, how can you help him? How can you help yourself? So the way you can help yourself and thereby help them as well is you can create boundaries. You can do that calmly but firmly. What a boundary is, is when we put a boundaries, it's basically a way to keep ourselves safe. That's the purpose of boundaries. When we put a borders between countries, fences, and a boundary is there to create personal safety for us. So when somebody is living with an addict, they are entitled to, to put safety in place for themselves um, in order for them to feel safe in this relationship. So some examples of that may be, you can have some non-negotiables around, for example, having filters on your spouse's devices. You can tell your spouse calmly but firmly that for me, this is a boundary. This is my personal safety. I don't feel comfortable. I don't feel safe without it. Another example would be you can insist that he, he enroll in therapy or you enroll in therapy or that he reach out to a Rav or he reach out to a friend or that you involve somebody. The important point to keep in mind is, is that none of this should be done with the effort to control the spouse's behavior. Trying to control an addict or in general trying to force people to change 
doesn't usually work out very successfully. People resist when we put pressure on them to change, especially somebody who's struggling with an addiction. What you can do is, is set it up in a way where you're, rather than being other-centered, where that has that control factor, it's very much about yourself. So that's, it really boils down to intention, what your intention is by setting up these boundaries. And uh, by doing so, by putting up boundaries, that's the first way you can start helping yourself because you're basically forcing that there's going to be some change in the dynamic that you're currently experiencing. And the byproduct of that is that you'll be helping your spouse as well because it's gonna force him or her to start changing some of their behaviors. So I hope that that can be helpful to you. Anybody else wanna jump in on this one? That was awesome. <laughs> Thank you. I'm just gonna. I'm just gonna put my two. If I could just throw out there one more thing, you know, just empathizing with that pain. There, there have been countless tears shed in my office when families come together dealing with an addict or a spouse who's an addict. That has been some of the most painful moments that I have witnessed. So I just want to again empathize with that pain when somebody's in such a situation. I, I think I, I want to just add that you, um, you know, a lot of times when people hear the word addict, they, they, they conjure up certain images in their head that might not even reflect reality. As, as mental health professionals, we tend to look at diagnostic criteria uh, to determine whether something is an abuse or a dependence type situation. Um, so just to clarify for, I think, a lot of people um, who may have, you know, the letter sounded maybe innocuous and then the term uh, addict. When we are failing to fulfill our primary role obligations, in this case is to be a good spouse, then we start to identify as, as addictive behavior. Because when in an in independent item, whether it's alcohol, drugs, uh, you know, technology or anything, starts to interfere with our primary responsibilities and we experience those consequences as a result, that's when we start looking at addictive behavior and that's when the treatment model shifts to what you were uh, discussing before. Absolutely. And I was just, uh, you know, mirroring the question seemed to imply that that it was clear addiction, but absolutely, that is something that a qualified therapist should be able to filter out when they're looking at the issue, if, if we're dealing with a real addiction or something else. I agree with you. Menachem, Coach Menachem. Yeah, so I, I just want to say that, obviously, this question, it sounds like there's a lot going on. And um, just coming on to tonight's show, and to get the answers is obviously not going to work. Um, and especially when you want to change your spouse, it, there's a lot of work that goes into there. And um, yes, seeking help would be a good idea. But overall, and back to the technology, there is a big uh, Nisoyan out there. And sometimes not everyone understands the other person's desire or the other person's what's burning inside. So if you're a parent, you know, if you have kids or whatever it is, it's even if you think for you it works, but it doesn't always work for the other person. And I personally heard stories from teenagers who they had open access and they would wish, I mean, they say they would wish and you never know what they would look like if they wouldn't have the access, but they would say, that they would wish if somebody would put on the filter and hold them accountable. So again, you know, at the end of the day, we all, we need a lot of siyata de shumaya with all of this. And in chavish matar atzmoi, that means 
it's very hard for a person himself to, I mean, sometimes it's very hard to do it by himself without these filters to make sure that he's aligned. So just to, just to justify that, you know, sometimes even though we think by giving them the access, it might work out, but we do need, have to, we do have to do our ishtadlis. Okay, I want to I want to cut into something over here because it came up over Yamtiv, and I think it's important for us everybody should know. Um, me and Achim are actually sitting together learning on Shuas, and uh, a teenager came over to us, and he said he's been watching the program for the past few episodes, and he said that he's had some issues that his parents wanted to get proper help for, in a therapeutic point of view, and uh, because he watched the shows and we opened up these issues to him, and he saw some of the therapists talk, he actually went and got proper help from one of the therapists, and he's extremely thankful for, for the program and how much it helped them. So me and Menachem actually got like, I want to use the word a kiss from Hashem to see that we're really doing some big stuff here. And there's a lot of people on the program. And, you know, I, I do feel there are younger people on the program. And I want to address a question from their point of view. Okay. Everybody can raise your hand first, whoever wants to answer. I am a teenager. All my friends have phones that we can connect and feel part of things. My parents are always trying to set limits to tell me to plead to, to, plug my phone in a pub to plug my phone in a public place at night but my parents don't are always using the phone and it's not just at work so the kid always his parents are saying don't do this use it this way use it that way but they're 24 hours on, on the phone how should a kid who's watching this or a teenager how do they deal with that i have a creative way. raising their hand so quickly i have a creative way that's here there used to be the smoking commercial you know, you know when i was young people used to smoke and yeah, no one does that anymore right and at least not in Boston. Not in Lakewood. Oh, Lakewood. Sorry. Anyhow, um, another. That's for another topic, right? So anyhow, um, so there used to be this this uh, this um, this advertisement about smoking, and uh, it would be this uh, this child would was smoking, and the mother or the father caught them smoking and said, "What are you doing? How, how could you how could you smoke?" And the child turns and says, "I learned it from watching you." I learned it from watching you. So if I were that kid, I would do a Google search for that video and then send it to my parents. Um, sorry for stirring the pot. There was a study that found that uh, six out of 10 parents were concerned about their teens' uh, cell phone use, uh, but seven out of 10 teens were concerned about their parents' Parents. <laughs> so what we're actually finding is, you know, it, it is interesting that uh, we had mentioned before about the filters and parents inculcating their values and expectations into their children, what those expectations are. Um, but uh, more than communicating and telling your kids, parental modeling uh, probably it goes much further than, you know, the communication. So we do see, a, a, you know, a discrepancy between what parents are saying. They're saying, do as I say, not as I do. Um, and there is a, a balance that needs to be struck because the reality is, is that kids are using their devices for social connectivity and, and that, you know, becomes an important part of their, uh, their experience. Parents are using it for social connectivity, but they also have very real world obligations uh, that may require them to be more connected to their phone than they would like to be, or then they may even be aware that they are. So when kids are expressing this, it's important that parents are, are one, uh, you know, become more self-aware of their own uh, habits with technology. Two, it's okay to communicate with your kids. Uh, you know, I, I tell parents all the time, 
it's okay. Tell your child, you know, I just got an email from my boss. I got to respond to it, but then I'm all yours. And then put the phone away for 10 minutes. And all it takes is putting the phone away for 10 minutes. What you're doing is you're demonstrating uh, that there's a time for technology and a time for not technology. And when you demonstrate that, you, un, the children understand that there are differences between parental responsibilities and their, uh, you know, connections, et cetera. So we can say that there are times for technology and times not for technology. A few years ago, um, one of my daughters uh, said, you know, wouldn't it be great if we had this, uh, if we had like dinner time and we had like this formal dinner with, you know, three courses and no distractions and, you know, really spend time. Um, so we never got to the three course uh, piece, but we actually do something in my home uh, called going dark for dinner. Going dark for dinner for 15 minutes or so, it's really not much longer than that. We put our devices away. It's not even that my phone's in my pocket. There's a, there's a whole boatload of research on the difference between having your phone in your pocket, on the table, in the other room, and, and the difference the distance actually makes uh, by not having the phone. But for those 15 minutes, we're at the table. There's no distractions. There's no technology, and it's amazing the, the, the connectivity of the relationship, but we're also modeling that there are times to put the devices away. And it, again, it doesn't have to be the same frequency of limits that you might set with your kids. There are different frequencies, different engagements, but it's so important to model. There's a time for technology and a time for not technology, and kids will better understand. My parents are modeling it. They're demonstrating it. They're, they're you know, being true to their words, so I can also put my phone away uh, you know, when it's requested of me. Okay, I'm going to jump on a quick poll, and then we're going to take another interesting question over here, okay? Because this poll is on topic. Here we go. How much time do you use electronic devices while interacting with family, family members? Choice A, some of the time. Choice B, always. Choice C, I'm not aware. So the first question is, how much time are you using your phone? When you're talking to people, you're talking to your, your wife, you're talking to your kids, are you on the phone? Second question, do you interact face-to-face -face with your family members at least as much as you interact with them via electronic means? It means do I talk to my kids or my wife as much as I text her or any any people? Let's go. Let's get some answers here. We need data. Dr. David, I can sell you the data. Okay. Five, four, three, two, one. Check this out. How much time do you use electronic devices while interacting with family members? 84%. Hello? We need serious help here. Some of the time. It's a lot. 11% always, 5% I'm not aware. Do you interact face-to-face -face with your family members at least as much as you interact on electronic means? 83% say yes. 12% say no. 6% I don't think my spouse thinks I don't. <laughs> like Dave, what do you say to these numbers? The yes is good by number two. I think that's probably because of Shabbos, to be honest. By the way, with regards to Shabbos, Ariana Huffington, non-Jewish author, in 2000, and, when was it, 2004? Ali, you probably know this one. She wrote about Shabbos. She said that if everybody would be like the Orthodox Jews and would take a respite of one day a week from technology, the world would be a better place. And she wrote that publicly. So I think that number two, one, is actually encouraging. Um, and I, I think for a lot of people who are removed from, from religion, that's, that's just not the case. Um, I, I want to I, I bring up like a clinical piece and you could probably speak more to it, but the compulsion of technology. I think if we were to, if we were to think about um, how frequently we check our devices in response to a ding or a buzz, 
versus just checking our devices as a compulsion, I think we would find that we more frequently just check our device to fill those gaps of time that uh, Dr. David was talking about before. We just seem to check it. I've been in a situation where I was in the middle of talking to my child and I feel that I'm reaching into my pocket and starting to pull my phone out. And what am I doing? I'm in the middle of communicating with someone. It's not like I got a buzz. It's not like I a, a ding. It's not like there's something, it's basically a thoughtless compulsion. So if we go back to the first thing that I had mentioned about being thoughtful and deliberative with technology, how we approach uh, you know, the utilization and the use of it. It needs to be thoughtful and deliberative. It can't be a compulsion. And then we're going to find that if we're in the middle of talking to someone, we're not going to pull out our phone. I was doing a workshop at a business on workforce well-being and productivity, and someone came over to me afterwards um, to discuss they felt that they were addicted to their technology. So I gave them two strategies, which I, I think really helped shape the compulsion piece uh, for him. One was in the morning, when he woke up, the first thing he did was check his device. So what I asked him to do was, you know, go to the bathroom, wash an agrobosser, then check your device. It basically basically delay, delayed his accessing his device for about 30 to 45 seconds. But it totally changed the power dynamic between him and the device. We have to look at the relationship. Who has the power there? The other thing was that that compulsion, I mean, he was really having an issue. I recommended that he tie a rubber band around his phone so that when he'd reach into po his pocket to feel his phone, he would feel the rubber band and remember that th it's a compulsion, unless he was responding to someone. And this way, he was able to take back the control over, uh, over the device usage. So when we're thinking about uh, you know, managing the, 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 the time that we spend with it, when we're, when we're speaking to other people, whether we're grabbing the phone, whether it's serving as a distraction to us, uh, we, we can think in those terms as well thoughtful and deliberative and recognize when our behavior is more compulsive than in response to uh, actually communicating or, or, or responding to an email or phone call. I just want to say, I just want to give a, I just want to give a cute illustration. My 15 year old son shared with me about having that compulsion. He says, when you look in shul, when the fellow after Shemanesi does Isa Shalim and the first thing he reaches for is to yank out that phone from the clip. So that's like just an illustration of just, I, you know, you got to just get that phone, you know, it's like almost impossible well, to I stay have a away. Personal, I have a personal rule. I don't keep my phone with me when I dive. And it's not because I'm such a from guy. I don't want anyone to think uh, that I'm too from. I, I just don't have my phone with me. I just feel like it, they don't go together. And uh, so the fact Where that- Where do you I put it? Where do you I put it? My locker. Well, when I was, yeah, my locker in, in Shul, when, when we used to go to Shul. Um, <laughs> good news about it is that uh, without my phone, my shafras is down to six and a half minutes, which is quite remarkable. <laughs> It's amazing. Um, but the reality is just that changing the behavior just a little bit, setting our own limits, uh, you know, and, and rules for ourselves changes the dynamic from being a compulsive dynamic and a compulsive relationship with the technology to being one that is a thoughtful and deliberative relationship with the technology. And that puts us in control of the behaviors. Very nice. And Ellie, you were talking just so behavioral now. You weren't talking any deep work. You were simply giving very behavioral interventions, delay, putting a rubber band around the phone. Although they sound simple and without depth, they work. I, Dr. David, I know, agrees with all of this. Yeah, there's right? no question. I mean, simple behavioral, behavioral works. are everything. This is a question I'm going to ask to Dr. David because it's, uh, it's a pretty broad question. You ready? I hope. What is the most problematic? Oh, one second. Before I ask the question, I want everybody to know I'm getting a lot of texts. Give me some, you know, practical advice. 
what I could do, you know, get more detailed. We're going to get to that soon. So I want everybody to know that, uh, that it's texting me that we're going to get to that. We're just talking about the issues in broad right now. Dr. David, what is the most problematic aspect of technology today? Um, we spoke about a bunch of them, but I'm going to throw out one that we haven't spoken about, which, which might actually statistically from an epidemiological standpoint be the most problematic, and that is sleep. Sleep is, it's very clear that technology has a profound impact on our sleep, specifically delayed sleep onset, increased nighttime waking, especially if you have your phone next to your bed, which is a really bad idea decreased quality of sleep because the people are waking up, and a decreased aggregate quantity of sleep. That in of itself, there's been a couple of years ago, there were several National Institute of Mental Health funded trials across the United States in different laboratories, which looked at sleep training as a way to treat people with major depression. That's a crazy thing. Just getting a bedtime and a wake time for two weeks, what all of these laboratories found, and they were all funded by you know, federal bodies, was that the effects on depression were pretty much the same as a course of cognitive behavior therapy or serotonin reuptake inhibitors like Prozac, Zoloft, and, and Celexa. Just getting to bed on time and waking up on time and being, you know, having sleep regulation and in the, in the first three days of the pandemic in New York, I teamed up with some researchers at Columbia University, and we looked at different predictors of people's levels of distress in a group of New Yorkers in um, just north of the city, where there was like, a, all of a sudden, everything was, everything was starting to happen. The number one predictor of distress, it wasn't even, it wasn't having COVID, it wasn't having a pre-existing medical condition, it wasn't having increased risk for COVID, it wasn't financial stress or kids at home or any of those things. The number one predictor was sleep quality. And we're talking about 40% of the variance. Two-fifths of a person's level of distress was accounted for simply by the amount of sleep. So to me, from an epidemiological standpoint, like a big picture aspect of it, the sleep dysregulation that's caused because of our devices is, is causing untold problems. There's a couple of solutions to this. The very simple one is a behavioral one along the lines that uh, my colleagues were saying before, 30 minutes before your bedtime, and by the way, that means you have to have a bedtime. 30 minutes before your bedtime, take your device and put it away, and don't keep it next to your bed. If you don't have an alarm clock, call me up, I'll get you one. What like an old fashioned alarm clock. What should they do without their phone? What should you do without your phone? Speak to someone, read a book, you know, brush your teeth, get into pajamas, sit and meditate, you know, I don't know. I, I want to jump on what you were saying. The number one predictor of a child's success, both socially and academically on any given day in school is directly related to the quality of sleep he had the night before. So any given day your child goes to school, if they got a good night's sleep, they are much, they're, they're going to maximize their potential. In my study on uh, teen technology habits, uh, we found that about 80% of kids uh, slept with their devices within reach, and 77% of the kids who slept with their devices within reach say they frequently stay up late as a result of their technology. So that relationship, just having a device next to your bed uh, for a teenager uh, is, is extremely problematic. Harvard did a great study a few years ago where they measured sleep quality 
uh, reading a book at bedtime versus reading an e-reader at bedtime. So just to, to your point, uh, what they found, well, I, I, you don't have to have gone to Harvard, no offense, uh, to understand this, but if you read a book at bedtime, what happens? You fall asleep. If, if you read from an e-reader, if I, I have a book uh, on my nightstand uh, that I've been reading for the last eight months, um, and I'm only on page two, and uh, you know, it, it's not because I learned in Chavetz Chaim that after eight months I'm still only on page two. That's that's not why. But if you read if you read a book at bedtime, you fall asleep. If you read from an e-reader at bedtime, it actually impacts melatonin production in the brain. It interferes with the uh, the ability to fall asleep, the quality of your sleep, as uh, Dr. David was saying. Uh, so I, I, I concur, sleep is, is, uh, is really what predicts our success the next day. We know how we feel when we didn't get a good night's sleep, our kids even more so, um, and uh, anything we can do to help promote a good night's sleep, uh, we should be doing. Ready to move on to the next one? Coach Menachem, anything? I was going to say, speaking of which, it's 1130. <laughs> uh. my, my bedtime is 1 o'clock. I'm solid about it. That's actually okay. <laughs> yes. Okay, I'm gonna ask this one to Dr. Shapiro, is that okay? Tell me the question first, then I'll tell you if it's okay. You tell me the answer first, then I'll tell you the question. We heard about a lot of negative effects of screen time. Now many communities are promoting an incredible amount of screen time for educational purposes. Shiurim, school, Zoom, you know, again, talking about across the globe over here. How can we reconcile those two things? So, uh, you know, the question about screen time is very interesting. Um, I, I wanted to state that the, the term screen time, although I use it and, and everybody uses it, it's really a misconception. Uh, screen time uh, is really divided into multiple categories. We can't compare, I, I, I've termed, there's more, but for simplicity's sake, I've termed three types of screen time, uh, consumption, complementary, and creative. But there's more within the, those categories. But consumption is, uh, you know, in some communities, people binge Netflix or, or something like that. And they'll just watch and watch. That's consumption. So there's really, it doesn't really trigger a cognitive process. There, there, there isn't thinking. There's no interaction. You're just sitting back and consuming. That's probably the least productive type of screen time. Uh, the next is complementary. I would say that, you know, you're interacting, you're communicating with someone. You even a video game. If you're playing a video game, it's triggering, uh, you know, cognitive activity. Uh, the brain is lighting up. There's there's something going on. And then the third level uh, is creative. Creative is educational. It's uh, coding. It's graphic design. It's uh, spreadsheets. It's actually uh, promoting a process of of cognitive functioning. So clearly, you can't put you know, binging on a, a show and a creative process like education in the same category. Yes, they're both taking place on screens, but qualitatively they're completely different. Uh, so a lot of the consequences that we talk about, the social, psychological, behavioral issues, we see leaning more towards the consumption, not as much in the creative realm of screen time, uh, which is mostly what's happening now with distance learning uh, and, and education. What's also interesting, uh, you know, right when the, uh, the distance learning started, I, I sent out surveys uh, and I got about 1,500 responses from parents around the United States. And uh, uh, they, they were given choices of different screen-related consequences that their kids might be experiencing. 
And I was surprised at this number, but about 60% of kids, of parents were reporting that their kids were experiencing no adverse uh, you know, consequences related to the strain. So that's 60%. And then the two of the highest ones was stress and fatigue that parents reported, which may or may not have been related to screen time. It may be more related to the global pandemic isolation uh, and quarantine overall. So it certainly needs a lot more study and research, but early on uh, the findings were that on the creative end of screen time, uh, most parents were reporting no consequences. With more and more screen time, we're seeing more Zoom fatigue uh, happening uh, in, the, in the coming weeks. But again, this is all so new, uh, you know, it really would benefit from a, a more in-depth uh, study. To, to identify, but clearly, if we need to to uh, reconcile the uh, different the, the uh, you know concerns we have for screen time and this situation, we do need to establish it's not ideal. You know, nobody really wants to be learning on Zoom full time. Nobody really wants to uh, you know be in the situation that we're in. But considering uh, the situation that we're in, the creative component of screen time is not the area that I'm most concerned about. I'd be more concerned about things leaning more towards the consumption uh, end of things. Anybody else want to add anything? Okay, so I know you guys were supposed to end now, but I have a bunch of questions, people that want to ask live questions. Are we good? Is everybody, is anybody falling asleep? Good. Huh? Good, okay, let's, let's do no, some. I'm falling asleep because I'm using my, I'm using my, my uh, device. No, the device is keeping you active. Keep on using your I phone. No, that's a problem. <laughs> Play some games. Play Subway Surf. Yeah, Hi, how are you? Are you on? Yeah, we're here. Okay. Um, my, my wife and I are both teaching on Zoom, and we have kids on Zoom, and they're on devices from my school. So we have some iPads, we have some Chromebooks, and Baruch Hashem, they're good kids, but they also get bored. And we find them on like really simple snake type games. So I'm in middle of class, she's in middle of class, we see, right, and we run, right, they're, they're supposed to be learning, and they get bored. Now, I, I don't know about you, but I've been bored in meetings also, it happens. But when this is happening day after day, is it something that we want to stop, something that we don't want to stop? Should I be nervous that snake could grow into something dangerous? How, how, how to like, what's the, what's the protocol that you would suggest in this new world? How old are, are your children that, are, that you're finding this with? 14, nine, whatever you want. Okay, so I can jump in here. Does anybody else want to go first? Okay, so uh, I think that I a really want to go first, but I'm going to let you go first. <laughs> I, so, of course, I'm just giving a general answer here. I don't know your family specifically, but um, a conversation is certainly worth having about it. So, you know, you sit down with your children, a 9 and 14, you could do it individually uh, with each of them, and you can just point out what you're noticing. So I'm noticing that sometimes in the middle of class, you're, you're playing a snake game. Sometimes in the middle of class, you're not following class. I think that the most important factor is that you open a conversation about it. Um, you know, that's an individual question if that's problematic for you, just the fact that your children are using those devices for things other than school. That could be that you have a, you know, a rub or, or, or your opinion of that is, is that the only heter you have to use the technology is for the Zoom classes and then I'm not going against that. I would respect that. If you're asking from a psychological perspective, if there's any concern with them playing games, I don't think there is. I think the important factor is that you have a way of addressing it with them and having an open and honest conversation. And in the same conversation, you can also impart your values around it. 
You can also discuss ways to limit it and all the other great things that we discussed on tonight's show. But of course, I'm curious to hear what uh, the other panelists. No, that's really show. nice. That's really nice. I think also it dovetails nicely with uh, what um, Dr. Shapiro was saying before that um, you know there it, most of the learning, unfortunately, that's happening right now in a classroom, the teacher speaks like 80% of the time, and the students are maybe raising their hand, saying something, they're participating maybe 20% of the time. Online learning isn't really supposed to be like that. If you look at what's actually effective, which we are not used to in the firm world because, well, we've never used technology before ever at this scale. So we're new to this. So we're making, we're cutting our teeth. But if you look at the data on actual education, Dr. Shapiro, you're better at speaking to this. The active components of, the more active the participant is, the more they're going to learn. An interactive game online or with a participant where you, you know, for example, give students a project to do and have them work on it and then present to the class, that's going to be much more effective of a teaching tool. And when you're having passive learning through an electronic medium, it's, it's, it's like, it's not shy that somebody's going to be able to keep their attention. Um, you know, it's just, you know, not, not even adult, let alone a kid, like you said, like your own, you know, your own attention tends to, tends to wane. So I, I think that we have to look at the context here and realize that the entire firm world is completely caught off guard. We've, we've, we, the whole world was, and we've morphed into an online delivery of traditional education, which will not work ever. And if kids are struggling with that to pay attention, well, that means that they're normal kids. So I would, you know, definitely be with Mordecai on that. I wouldn't, I wouldn't pathologize it in of itself, but you can have a conversation and that would be very healthy. I, I think probably the most remarkable piece of the whole story is that you have a 14 year old who you can still get away with letting them play a snake game as opposed to something more, uh, more challenging. But that, that, that's, uh, that's amazing. I don't think from what I'm hearing from the question that it's not the game itself, but it might be the timing of the game. I, I would, you know, seek to shift it to a later point in the day, say, look, I understand class is difficult, but the, the playing the game during class uh, you know, let's set aside some time after class to play the game and I'll even play the game with you. So it becomes less about the game at this point and more about uh, spending time together. You know, once we're on the topic of gaming, uh, you know, uh, as a topic, um, assuming that the content of gaming is okay for your individual family, and I'm not here to make a judgment on, you know, what games are okay for your family and what games aren't okay, there are actually a lot of benefits that we see people who play games versus not games. A game like Snake, you know, is pretty innocuous, but kids who play games uh, generally are better at problem solving, better at collaborative problem solving. Uh, there is almost no problem that they don't think can be accomplished because games are designed to condition people uh, in that way. So they're, they're able to multitask, ground out external noise. There's a whole host of benefits. Now, there's always a point, what we call point of diminished returns, where, you know, whatever benefit you might be getting from gaming, if you find yourself, you know, 35 years old, living in your parents' basement, playing Xbox all day, you're probably past the point of diminished returns. Uh, do my colleagues concur with that? Uh, <laughs> yeah, that, I, I think that that might be past the point. But, I shouldn't laugh because it really does happen. So. Yeah, so uh, there is some benefit uh, to it. So I wouldn't completely discourage again, if you're okay with the content um, and utilizing it as an opportunity, uh, you know, uh, my, my son happens to like sports games like, uh, you know, Madden, uh, NFL, 
and I play with him, I'm terrible. I mean, he's a, he, he loves the opportunity to do something better than me, and he's really better at me uh, than this. And so it really becomes a bonding experience that we can be utilized in that way. In your specific situation, understand that it's really difficult to sit through an entire day in a Zoom class, uh, you know, but it's inappropriate to be playing video games during that time. What I would do is I would encourage him to say, hey, let's, let's you know, isolate some time this afternoon after class. You and I will play snake together. We'll see who can do better, et cetera. And just you know, utilize that as a parenting opportunity uh, to spend time with your child and show them, again, there's a time for technology, a time not for technology, there's a time for gaming, there's a time not for gaming. Hey guys, we have a lot more. I really want to try to like come to the end because I want to finish before 12, but the way things are going, it might go longer. Let's take one more live question. And then I have one. Uh, <laughs> sorry, Dr. David. Whoa, whoa, whoa. sorry. I, don't I live in Boston. I have a running routine. I got to get up early tomorrow. You know, Charles Rivers calling my name. <laughs> one more live or just going to go to the last question. Whatever you want. Okay. You good? Okay. One more live question. Okay. No, why is it on mute? Hi, how are you? Hello. Hi, how are you? Hi, can you hear me? I hear you loud and clear. Hi. Hi. Okay, great. Um, my, my question is a little bit two-part, um, addressing two different issues, but I work, and so when my kids are off of their, they don't have Zoom classes, they have classes by phone, but when they're off and I'm working, I, sometimes the only thing that I can give them in order to keep them occupied is video, and that can be, I'm saying, it's, it's, I, I'm very strict about it only being Jewish videos and kosher videos, and they're good with that also, but it ends up being hours and hours. Even if I'll give them limits, I'm not able to control those limits. Um, and I see that like when, when I do finally finish and I'll turn off the video and say I said it has to go off, they'll, they'll exhibit um, typical behavior of, of their young children, but of, of children that, of anybody that has addiction or has been on too much technology, or they start getting angry or, or they'll, they'll either hurt each other or start yelling or whatever, whatever the scenario. Sometimes they'll just give it up easily. But so that's my, my part A is, is I, knowing that it's not the, what, I use, what I would value to do, but at this stage, it's the only, my only answer in order to keep them occupied. What, how should I deal with that? And my second thing is that a, a different technology um, part is that my, my children now have cell phones. They're not with, with it. They're, they're not like smartphones, but they're cell phones with texting for their school. Um, I did not have the phone, the texting taken off, but I noticed that my eight-year-old actually, he learned how to text and he started communicating with me and with other people via text. And he's, it's a new world for him where he's actually opening up a lot. Um, a lot of frustration that he's had and he's never been able to express these things verbally. He's now texting me. Um, and it's just like, at first I wanted to take away the texting and I see maybe, maybe he needs that texting technology but I feel like I'm feeding him into something that can be an addiction by allowing it. So it's, those are my two questions, my two points. I don't know if they're questions, but. You have about a few thousand hours of therapists here. So who wants to go first? Um, I, I guess I'll, I'll just uh, briefly say that, um, you know, uh, I, I've been quoting um, Rabbi Yisachar Friend at the CM Hashas uh, this past January said, don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Um, we are in a very difficult situation right now and we're not gonna get it perfect. Uh, we can't get it perfect. 
and we need to focus on getting it good. And the advice I give to parents that are, are in your situation is the same advice that um, when I used to fly, I was a big Delta guy, uh, they would always say, and I don't think it's exclusive to Delta, but uh, they would say, if there's a sudden change in cabin pressure and the air masks come down, put the air mask on yourself first before putting it on your child. As parents, in order for us to be effective at what we do, we need to be able to breathe. And in order for us to breathe, sometimes we have to do things that are good, but not perfect. And so um, whatever you can do to limit and utilize uh, you know, limitations when it comes to uh, technology and, and uh, you know, uh, screen time, do so. But if you can't, for a variety of reasons, the realities and the pragmatics that we're currently living through don't allow you to uh, achieve your ideal level of functioning, that's okay. We're going to get through it. We're going to get past it. You know, it's temporary and uh, we're going to get there and uh, your children will bounce back. Uh, they will uh, self-correct in many ways when it comes to the technology. And so just do your best, do good, and don't shoot for perfect. Because if you shoot for perfect, your own anxiety and your own struggles um, are going to get in the way of, of, of the effective parenting. So I'll just I'll focus on the first question. But I think uh, anyone else want to weigh in on that? Yeah, that was great. Yeah, I would agree on that. I, I would want to make sure that you've explored all options. Like, for example, do the kids have bikes? Are they able to go rollerblading? Are they able to go out? Can they play basketball, even if it's just them in their driveway? You know, I, I don't know. And maybe you have exhausted all those options, but maybe we haven't. And I would want to know about board games. I would want to know about books, secular and, you know, from books or whatever is like, you know, you know, for example, more English books. I mean, more English books as opposed to Hebrew books or whatever it is. So, you know, I want to I want to explore a whole bunch of options aside from just, you know, immediately going to video, but it could be that you've exhausted all your options and we're stuck. With regards to using right. the text to connect. Can I answer regard, that just for a second? I mean, there's no need because, um, but, but I think well, let's get into the second question um, about the using the text to connect. There's no question that, you know, texting is a subpar form of communication. People today don't even, they don't even put vowels, let alone, you know, a salutation like dear so-and-so, you know, any normal communication has salutation, greeting, approbation, closing statements, sign off. I mean, that's how a letter should go. And whether it's email or text or WhatsApp or whatever, there is sort of like a shorthand and people often will, there's like a lack of basic cover that people have for each other in their text communication, which is a real problem. However, there are cases like what you're describing where somebody can't have long communication and they also can't do it verbally and being able to get them to open up by text is the beginning. I wouldn't just leave it at that though. I would follow up in a verbal communication after the text, hey, you texted me something earlier on today about something that was happening in school. Can we talk about that over some ice cream? And like, I would use the text as a, as a PESA, use it as an opening to be able to, to engage. I always say that text and WhatsApp and even email, they can't create connections, but they can, in your case, kind of is initiating it, but it's not gonna really forge a connection. It can keep us connected, but it's not gonna forge a connection. So I think it's, you know, it's good for making plans, it's good for initiating a conversation, but I agree with you that I wouldn't be worried about using it for that purpose. I think it's great. And you're very, I think it's very smart and, and, and instinctive to not put an end to it. 
But with the same time, pixels definitely are not enough. Don't just rely on that technology. The human interaction involving the nonverbals, verbal communication, tone, intonation, pace, all of that you can't have in an electronic means. So the goal is to be able to get to healthy interpersonal connection. To share an interesting point about that, uh, that you mentioned as far as finding your son being able to open up more easily over text, many therapists are reporting that clients who would have ordinarily been hesitant to share certain information or clients that have, like I've started seeing clients now who in the past have said they couldn't open up to other therapists because the platform, because the therapy was in person versus today it's over the phone or it's over Zoom, there's less of that shame factor and they're less inhibited. So we are actually finding in therapy as well that for a certain amount of uh, clients, that that's a helpful dynamic that they're now more easily able to open up to us because it's over the technology. I would, however, certainly agree with what Dr. Uh, Rosemarin mentioned that uh, it's only a start and we wanna obviously help them to take that to the next step. Yeah, I just wanna to add to this, uh, the underlying reason behind this, psychologist John Suller identified in 2007 what's called the online disinhibition effect. And that is that we're more likely, we're more comfortable to do and say things in the digital realm than we would in a face-to-face -face conversation. And so it has a downside to it. You have otherwise- Text fights, text fights, between, text fights between couples. Yeah, yeah. They're vicious, vicious, vicious. We, we find ourselves that we may do or say things that we wouldn't normally do and say in a face-to-face -face conversation, and that can actually promote negative behavior. But when you have someone, the flip side is, when you have someone who is, uh, has social anxiety or uh, particularly in the uh, autism spectrum that have difficulty communicating in real time, they do very well with uh, digital communication for the same reason, because of that lack of disinhibition, because of the disinhibition, because of the lack of uh, inhibition. And so, Balancing that, um, and I like the uh, connection that uh, Dr. David mentioned of, of bridging the digital communication to real communication, um, and he alluded to Morabian, who identifies that 80% of, of communication is paraverbal, meaning it's not, it's everything but the words themselves. Um, so putting that all together, understanding the underlying where people have the ability to now express themselves where they may not have been able to before, or when the behavior turns negative where otherwise uh, normal sane people uh, become crazy in chat groups or in comments, um, in comment groups, uh, you know, understanding the underlying behavior, but also um, what we're talking about is communicating with our children and leading them down a path of effective quality, meaningful communication, utilizing the technology as a tool to elevate their communication styles. Okay, guys, it's getting very late. We're going to do something interesting here. We're going to ask one last loaded question. It's actually two, three questions together. I would like to hear from all four people to give one answer, either part or the whole question, or however they want to do it. Limit the time as much as possible, and then we'll go to closing. Everybody will say a small remark, and let's do it like that. Is everybody on board for this? Dr. David, are you still texting, or are you with me? <laughs> I'm just joking. <laughs> here goes the questions. What Hello, I'm trying to read. What could we do to have a healthier relationship with technology? Question A. Question B, do you have some tips to balance technologies in our lives and getting a handle of out of control technology use? Let me just repeat the three questions again. What could we do to have a healthy relationship with technology? To have some practical tips to balance technologies in our lives 
and to get a good handle on out of control technology use. Um, who wants to go first? Mordechai, you want to go first? Yeah, I'll be happy to jump in here. Thank you. So I, the, all the different questions sound kind of the same. Right. And uh, I, I, I combined them into one. Okay. I certainly Actually, wife, uh, can... <laughs> I'm sorry? My wife did. Okay. I certainly can see that everything that we mentioned here tonight should be helpful. So uh, referring back to what I said, uh, the opening remarks about uh, creating... Um, limits that accessibility, so fil uh, filtration, um, monitoring, and time limits, place limitations, that's one way to gain control. Um, developing uh, healthy outlets in one life, meaningful relationships, that's another way. Uh, those are things that I mentioned in the beginning. One part maybe that we didn't focus that much on, on uh, that much on, although we did focus a little bit, was on creating a value system. Um, there might be one value that, I, that I, I feel comfortable sharing being that this is mostly a firm crowd that I don't think we touch that much upon, and that is the value of time or wasted potential. We heard how technology can impact our relationships, impacts our sleep patterns, um, but there's also a very real factor regarding how much time is wasted on technology. And if, if I can be so bold to quote a Gemara, the Gemara says that there's three people that HaKadosh Baruch Hu cries for every day. And the types of people that it lists over there are not ones who are committing uh, tr major, major sins that we're familiar with, but rather one of them is Misha Evshle Lasik Bateir Ve'ene Isaac. It's crying, it's, it's crying over a loss of wasted potential, of unfulfilled poten potential, wasted time. So that also could be that a motivating factor, one, one amongst many that might be helpful for somebody to contemplate, think about. The only way to get a control over technology is if you're actually motivated to do so. So we can give all of the strategies and all the tips in the world, but unless somebody gets in touch with their values or decides for themselves why it's important uh, to get a grip on technology, uh, then it'll be of little use to just talk about strategy. So that's another factor, talking about values and motivation that might be helpful. Menachem. Yeah. Should I repeat the questions? No. Okay, so first of all, I'm really blown away of this whole... Um... I want to pause you for one second. I just want everybody to know, I got about 15, 20 texts that this is the most fantastic, most intriguing session that anybody's ever seen. You blew everybody's minds away tonight. I just want everybody to know, all four of you. Continue, sorry. So first of all, thank you very much for all these... Um... David, Ellie, and Mordechai, it's really unbelievable just to hear the awareness that you all know I love, just to be aware of what's going on, which we had a lot of awareness tonight. And one major thing that we're aware is that there is a big fear of being without your phone. And uh, David, you said a half hour before you go to sleep, that might be hard. You might have to start with five minutes and slowly get to a half hour but um, there is that, that soothing, like we said before, just to be with your phone, you feel comfortable, and it's hard. But on the other hand, to take small steps to be able to connect to your spouse, to your kids, and to Hashem, and really most important is to be able to connect with yourself. And what I would recommend is find a few minutes every day Go out with yourself. Go take a walk. 
leave your phone somewhere just for just for to start with two minutes because it might be hard. But you'll see, you can do it for two minutes and the next day do it for three minutes and slowly build on it. And eventually you'll, you'll get to a place like we, we heard from Ellie that eventually you realize, hey, I could be without it. And it's actually, there's manucha, there's peace. Nobody can get to me now and I'm on my own. But again, it does take work and you have to take the steps, cognitive steps that we heard tonight and slowly build on those steps. Dr. Shapiro. I think very simply put, we need to be thoughtful and deliberative with our technology use. And if we are thoughtful and deliberative about it, all those other things will follow. The steps, the behaviors, the, uh, you know, separating from the technology. I, I, I say it really ad nauseum, the term thoughtful and deliberative, uh, because I really believe that that's the approach. Um, I, I think right now, this next generation of kids that we're raising are more fortunate than the, than the previous 10 years ago. I don't think we were even thinking in terms of, we were thinking in terms of content, but uh, we weren't thinking in terms of how it really impacted our overall functioning. And I think we have so much more awareness now uh, that we just didn't have. And having that awareness will allow us to take that approach, think about it, to inculcate into our kids, and uh, since everyone's giving a Devar Torah, and it is called the Shir, I'll just say that, uh, you know, by Yosef and Aishas uh, Potiphar, you know, he had to deal with her on a day-in, day-out basis, and Rashi brings down the most Yoknishal Aviv, that his father's image came to him, and that's what he, what helped him get through that challenge. We're always going to be dealing with, uh, with an Aishas Potiphar in one, one form or another, and if we can be thoughtful and deliberative, and as parents, we can inculcate the family values into our kids, they're going to be better equipped to face the world and the challenges that technology presents. So they'll be able to maximize what technology has to offer uh, just by us allowing it to happen through a process of parenting and values and modeling for them. And again, being thoughtful and deliberative with how we utilize technology and how we bring it into our homes. Back to David. There's not a lot to say after all that, but um, you know, I, think you, I think you've heard a lot of practical tips, taking breaks from technology, not only on Shabbos, but uh, during davening. I like that idea of leaving it in your locker. I want to try that um, during lunchtime, during dinner time. Um, I said 30 minutes before bedtime, you know, whether that's five or 10 or whatever you can do, we all know that we should put it away and also not sleeping next to your device. The 10 minutes a day, no, no tech, huge. Um, I, I said before, and I'll say it again, take on one project that's above your ability. We are very hooked on having success in everything that we do all the time. And I think that's one of the things that's destroying American culture on mass. I'll just say I grew up in Canada and uh, in, in, Tor in Toronto. And when I grew up, 80% on a test was an A. And that's not because Canadians are dumb. It's because actually the Canadian, the system there pushed you harder. If you got a 90 or 95 on a test, it was like, oh my God, like that's, that was, so by definition, the, the material was too hard. You couldn't get a hundred. And in America, like I have some, you know, I've seen kids that come back with 110 on a test, 106. It's like, what are you saying? You know, 106% of the material, like it's, it's, it's a chisarum because I would prefer them coming back with an 86 that they really earned than like all these bonus points. And I think that's one of the biggest things that tech has made us very um, unable to handle failure. 
and it's really kind of crumbled us. So I like pushing people past their limits, um, not to break them, to, to, to get used to not, you know, to not making it. That's a good thing. And that's something that I think we have to do. Face-to-face um, -face time with loved ones, um, no question on a daily basis. I'll just say one more thing, which I think is practical, um, which is, and I, we spoke about it, I spoke about it a little bit before that the nature of, um, in the Q&A, the nature of text communication is, it's, it's really not covered there. Um, Revolve actually in the Ali of Bays has a whole vibe in Kavod about writing letters. And he speaks about how you, you have to address a person, you're at Salam al Kim, and you have to, you have to speak to them with, with grace. Um, it's somebody who's worthy of respect. Now that's hard to do with a WhatsApp, but pick your emojis carefully, like actually put some effort into it. Um, an email, you will never get an email from me without dear so-and-so, you know, signed, you know, with my last name, unless it's like a banter back and forth. But, you know, sometimes email gets into like, you know, like ba 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 So like, okay. But an initiating email, uh, if you ever get an email from that with me, then take a screenshot and like, you know, send it to Rabbi Kellen. That's not okay. Um, and then of course, you know, uh, the having filters, Google safe search. Just one thing you can do now, go to Google if you have it on your phone or your device and turn on safe search. You need to have safe search on. Safe search will prevent you from inadvertently coming and clicking on something in a Google search. Um, and if you don't have web Javier or Covenant Eyes or another monitoring software, if you're not involved with TAG, then call them tomorrow. Um, those are, I think are the highlights of what we spoke about tonight. Amazing. Thank you very much, Dr. David. Um, I'm going to just give closing and um, thank all our sponsors again. And if anybody else wants to chime in with final words, fine. I mean, we basically did a closing, but anybody else wants to chime in, that's great. Again, I want to thank our corporate sponsor again this week, Mr. David Lichtenstein from www.yeshivashamala.com, which is an incredible website. Chaz's all day daily shurim, dafyomi, chizik shirs. We're on there, so it must be a great website. We really thank them for sponsoring this week and being mechazik, all these hundreds of people that came on tonight. I want to give a special thank you to our advertising partners. This is Chaya Kaufman from Yeshiva World News and this is nice. LNN, the Lakewood News Network, Lakewood's most viewed status. You could sign up by sending a WhatsApp message, 732-903-5017. Mr. Yanko Wenger from the Lakewood Shopper, Jay Blast, Mika Sofer from COL Live, from good friends with Moshi. Thank you, Moshi. And if Chazak from, from children's to teens, singles, couples, millennials, to baby boomers, for all the cherished seniors, Chazak offers programming for all. And I want to give a bracha to Coach Menachem, to Dr. Shapiro, Dr. David, and Mordechai Weiss for coming here, donating your time. Um, this was beyond an amazing program. And people were mind blown because when we met before the program and we spoke, I was mind blown. So I knew that this was going to be an amazing program. It was interesting to take the more scientific, the more you know, understanding what technology does to us and how it affects our, all our different things that it affects. And we should realize that not from the, oh, just don't do it, you know? Understand what we, when we allow these things into our house. Uncle Moshi, twins in France included, right? We're talking about that also. What it does to us and what it does to our children. And um, when I spoke to uh, somebody on the pre-shear, Mr. Ellie Shapiro, I thought it was mind-boggling. And he said he went to a conference once and it was by a whole technology conference. And the lady's like, I have no cell phone. I have no smartphone after this. But the kid is watching Uncle Moshi, you know, for four hours straight in his carriage, you know, what that's doing to the kid. So we have to be aware of these things and, you know, not to blame anybody and not to take it in a, in a bad way. We live in a very busy world. We, 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 we juggle jobs. We juggle, you know, difficult situations. And, you know, I'm going to say it over, Bishay, my Rav, actually. My Rav said, when your kid is crying 
and you're having a headache and you're driving the car and so that, and the kid's crying for that video to put on that YouTube, those tears will bring Mashiach. Those are the tears that will hold you back to being Mashiach because it's so easy to give your kid into that thing. But that leads into the next and the next and the next. So it's really, really an amazing thing. And I, I, I think that tonight you guys really blew the crowd around. Um, Mordechai, if you want to say something, um, no, Dr. Eli, Dr. David, Coach Menachem, I want to hear more from you. No pressure. You really, guys, were amazing. Mordechai, you did say you I have were. a short story. Let's hear it. Then we'll pass it around. We'll pass, we'll pass the hot potato around. Obviously, whoever wants can leave, right? Um, so the we're first thing I just want to... What? We're going to come after them if they leave. I just want to say again, uh, don't worry about it. The first hundred years are the hardest. But the uh, story I'd like to share is, is that in the uh, well-known book, All for the Boss, so the author, uh, Ruchama Shane, she writes about her father, Rabbi Herman, that uh, she grew up in the beginning of the 20th century. And uh, she used to go with her sisters to the movies sometimes. At that time, the movie was just sound. There was, uh, there was just picture, no sound. And her father was reluctant to let his children go to, for her and her sisters to go, but he did allow it sometimes. And one time it happened that their mother and uh, his wife uh, had won a uh, ticket to go see the movie. And the condition was that she has to go during school hours. So the author, Ruchama, writes that the day that uh, the mother was going to see the movie was the first time she was going. She was so distracted in school. She was so excited to find out how much her mother enjoyed and to hear all about it. Soon as school was over, she ran home. She got through the door and she said, Mama, how was it? So the mother says, um, it was great. So she says, what did you see? So she starts telling over and, and her husband is sitting there and, and the children are there. And she says, I sat down in the seat and I saw that there was a cowboy riding a horse down a dirt path. And then what happened? And she said, well, it was nice and cool in the theater and the seat was so comfortable, I fell asleep. And the next thing I knew when I opened my eyes, I noticed the cowboy coming back again down that same dirt path. And then the movie was over. So uh, their father, Rabbi Herman, turned to Adel and he said, uh, you know, I think that going to the movies is a good thing for you. Anytime you have the opportunity to go, I think that you should take advantage of it. It's just seeing how relaxed she was from her nap there. So technology can be very helpful and, and it could be a very useful tool. It all depends on how we use it. Thank you, Mordecai. I really appreciate it. Dr. Ellie, you want to say something? Uh, I'll, I'll yield the floor in deference to Dr. Rosemarin's run tomorrow. Uh, I know he wants to uh, get to sleep. Coach Manafam, you want to say something? I just want to say thank you again to you all for coming on tonight, and thank you for the sponsors. I just want to finish with a little line over here coming from Dr. David's papers. And I think it's very powerful in what we discussed tonight. is Devices are for productivity and multitasking. And real relationships use exactly the opposite skills, which was really amazing. I think it, it takes, uh, we're, we're going to have to elaborate by maybe a different show, but this is, uh, this is what we discussed tonight. And I want to thank everyone for being here tonight, and uh, especially you, David, Ellie, and Mordechai. Thanks for having us. Thanks, David. I'm, I'm, I'm going to bed. <laughs> all right. Everybody, it's been a pleasure. Thank you all. Good night. We'll see you next week. Two things. Anybody wants to see a recording of the share, please go to www.menachembernfeld.com. Thank you, Gabi. Please go to menachembernfeld.com tomorrow. He's going to have this whole thing. It's recorded, and it's all going to be live on the site. Next week, we have Saul Freeman and Co., one of the best accountants in Brooklyn for 40-plus years. 
We are going to tackle financial issues in today's day and age in a different angle than everybody's used to. It's going to be mind-blowing. And um, maybe after the share, a lot of people are going to have a lot of anxiety. So your centers might get full, David. See you. Thank you very much, everybody. Good night. Okay. Bye. Bye.